Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. I'm John Bodhorst, the editor of Commentary Magazine, asking you again to consider adding commentary to your list of year-end giving opportunities. Commentary is a 501c3 nonprofit. Your donation is tax-deductible in order to produce this podcast, to produce the magazine, to produce the website. We rely on the generosity of our listeners, our readers, uh, and uh, people who believe in our mission and our purpose in providing a sensible, sane, rational conservatism to the world that is pro-American, supportive of the greatest ideas in Western literature and thought, a bulwark against anti-Semitism, and a Zionist enterprise that supports the uh, that supports the Jewish national aspiration. If those are pleasing to you or of interest to you, or you just really enjoy this podcast and want to continue listening to it, uh, please go to commentary.org slash donate and give generously. We would be very, very grateful. And by we, I mean executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, tech commentary columnist Jim Meggs. Hi, Jim. Hi, John. James B. Meggs, I should say, with your formal uh, ident. And, and Jim uh, has, uh, like Christine, has a monthly column in commentary, the tech commentary column. And his column, uh, is uh, was eerily prophetic uh, last night, and uh, one of the reasons that, uh, aside from the fact that we love having him on whenever we have him on, wanted to have him on today, I just will read to you the opening of Jim's uh, column, which is called Twilight of the Tech Gods, if I can pull it up here. One second. Uh, here is the opening of his column. Quote, Maybe a few years in a federal prison will be good for Sam Bankman-Fried. The high-tech grifter went from billionaire to broke in a matter of days when investors realized that his FTX cryptocurrency trading platform had vaporized their money. FTX was a Ponzi scheme purpose-built to snare investors like them, people who thought they were smarter than everyone else. So, Jim, congratulations on your We Closed the Magazine last Thursday, put it up yesterday, and within hours of this being available online, apparently authorities in the Bahamas and in the United States read it and decided to indict uh, to seek the extradition of Sam Bankman-Fried from the Bahamas. And indictments are being unsealed today, I guess, both in the uh, Southern District of New York and from the SEC of uh, of this uh, grift. So you did it. Mazel tov. How, how how did you see this coming? You know, it's just another example of the limitless reach and influence of Commentary Magazine, I think, John. Uh, you know, it's funny. I learned a long time ago in journalism, don't predict something that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but it just seemed to me like a foregone conclusion that, that this guy had broken so many laws, he's going to wind up in jail eventually. And, uh, and... Only after I wrote it did I start seeing all these comments pop up on Twitter and elsewhere, like from the right. Oh well, Sam Bankman-Fried's never going to jail because he gave too much money to Democrats. I'm sorry, like 
I don't think there's enough, you know, I think that might help in the, in the edge cases, but this case was so blatant. I, I think it was just a matter of time before the, before the feds moved in, but it was funny that he was supposed to testify, but before uh, Maxine Waters house finance committee today. And uh, you know, that he agreed to come, come testify. And he had, uh, he had, you know, submitted some um, his testimony in advance, and then at the last minute, that got uh, sidetracked by the fact that the police in the Bahamas arrested him on behalf of the the federal prosecutor, Southern District of New York, uh, and he, I assume, he'll he will be on a plane to um, to Manhattan um, uh, very shortly. Uh, apparently, he said yesterday in one of the many interviews that he chose to give after after FTX went went belly up, he said, I do not think that I will be arrested. That was about four o'clock, and I think he was arrested at seven. So um, this this raises this interesting question about him as almost as a literary character, as a which is. Um, is he an evil genius or is he chance the gardener from being there? Is this all some kind of bizarre kind of, uh, you know, vague, uh, it's like a holy moron who didn't understand what he was doing and ends up as president of the United States? Or, you know, was this all part of the scheme from the beginning and this weird, innocent, naive act that he's been playing since since FTX went belly up? uh is all part of the evil genius yeah or is he like a character from animal house or some 80s you know <laughs> teen comedy he kind of reminds me i think i wrote in the column that he, he reminds me sort of of like the the um the the frat boy who uh, who can you know, wiggle out of all kinds of trouble who gets caught having uh, stolen the car of the president of the college. But he thinks if he just keeps talking, he can explain that it was all innocent and it wasn't his fault. And he isn't he a nice guy. He was just a little confused. And I think that's more the vibe. Like he's been able to talk people into so many things. And now he's falling back on the idea that he's he was kind of over his head. It's, you know, money, it's all really complicated and you can't really blame him. And he meant well. And I think he really believes that if he just keeps talking and apologizes the right way, he he can talk he, he can talk himself out of this. And and I mean that there's a foolish element to that because that's not how prosecution works well interestingly the other person who might be willing to talk right now is his ex-girlfriend who is intimately involved with with everything going on at the beginning and who has evidently lawyered up and and might easily have an incentive to flip on him and actually reveal a great deal about what she he did flipped, in fact she know. might have flipped she might have flipped already. already but like yeah. I, I think jim's point is really important that that idea that this guy is going to aw shock so i just didn't realize his way through the through this uh debacle which lost regular people lots of money um we saw a preview of that when the new york times interviewed him a few weeks ago right it was like oh you know they they laughed along with him oh you poor you, you're just this brilliant genius who has no common sense kind of approach that is utterly it, it didn't seem authentic at the time and for whatever federal prosecutors are going to uncover is going to make that seem in hindsight even more damning for the journalists whose beat is to cover guys like this and to see if they're full of it and they didn't do their jobs the super bowl last year this excuse me the beginning of this year the super bowl 
So every, you know, every time there's a bubble, uh, the, the, the participants in the bubble seem very eager to buy Super Bowl ads. So you may remember that in 1999 or something, pets.com bought, I don't know, $50 million in Super Bowl ads. There were like five or six ads on the Super Bowl for pets.com, which of course disappeared the minute that the, um, you know, that that bubble uh, burst in the beginning of 2020. And at the beginning of this year, I don't know how many ads there were on the Super Bowl for crypto uh, currency exchanges and investments. And there is an interesting thing going on in relation to that, which is that people are starting to consider or move on lawsuits against celebrities who endorsed crypto in their ads. That's like Larry David, Matt Damon, a couple of other people on the grounds that while yes, they are actors and they're just promoting a product. Um, it gets to this weird question of did they know or should they have known this is a very risky kind of investment. It's not safe. It's a, it's an unknown technology in an unknowable market. It has very little history and they're essentially going on a broadcast and trying to convince a relatively low information, relatively low earning populace that it is safe for them to throw money into this world. And I, I think that gets to the entire tech world bubble in relation to this, which is when hedge funding started, the whole idea was high net worth individuals who could lose money doing super risky investing or doing stuff that, you know, that was okay because you're talking about people who live in a, a place in which they, they have so much investment capital that it should be understood that they can, that they can make investments that they can risk all on. And that therefore it was okay that these hedge funds had these very high uh, initial investment rules and stuff like that in order to, in order to keep it siloed from ordinary investors who could not afford to lose their nest eggs doing wildly risky things. Crypto is the ultimate risky thing, and it was mass marketed. And Sam Bankman-Fried was one of the key mass marketers of crypto, which is why he will go to jail for a very long time if they can prove that he did this, because he didn't just defraud, you know, the people who invested in, I don't know, in Elizabeth Holmes, right? He didn't defraud them. They went, they were, there were people, you know, ordinary people sinking their life savings into, into this who shouldn't have, and under other circumstances would never have had access to this market. And that was the game. The game was to be the person who could, who could con the largest number of people into throwing your assets and then what did he do with the assets he took them and he bought apartments in the bahamas and he invested it in liberal schemes and he you know i don't know had a polyamorous commune and you know was gonna naming right a stadium you know i i don't know so we're just a, this is an interesting thing that this is a this is a moment at which you could see 
this entire sideshow of crypto collapsing on the grounds that it's too dangerous an investment for most people. And it started to become a, a democratized investment in a way that the SEC exists to prevent. That That's exactly the, the thought I was going to, that's what I was going to say. It's not, it's not a sideshow because it's not, it was not only mass marketed, but fully democratized because there is no barrier for entry in crypto. You don't need a broker. You don't need any, you, excuse me, you could do with an app and uh, you know, it's like playing angry birds or, or whatever the, 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 the currently uh, popular game is you can, you can buy a little, you can buy a tiny amount, you can buy a lot. You could just put pennies in each day. You could do whatever you want. And everyone it's, you know, like every walk of life, every American out there, um, it's it's hit every social strata. There's there's all there are a lot of people that are deeply in this. I mean, look, people buy lottery tickets, right? The dumbest investment in the history of the planet is to is to buy, you know, ten dollars worth of lottery tickets. You have a one in a billion chance of hitting the jackpot. It's incredibly stupid, but. It's low cost. It's very low cost. In theory, if you put a penny a day into crypto, that's $3.65 a year. And, you know, if for some reason something happens where you get a jackpot, I I don't quite understand how that works, but it's not it's it's not that that big a deal. If it's like if you play it like it's Angry Birds. What these people did was something a little different. I mean, they were actually seeking large-scale investment from people who aren't large-scale investors that's why you that's why you advertise on the super bowl you're not doing that in order to convince you know somebody who has a million dollars you know in the market to or you know way more than a million dollars in the market to go into your product you're trying to get somebody who makes seventy five thousand dollars a year and squirrels away a couple thousand dollars a year to try to, you know, invest and 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 make money in the market. You're trying to get their money. You're trying to get at their money. Well, but also it's addictive. Um, I mean, all gambling is addictive, yeah. but this combines sort of gambling addiction with tech addiction. Um, so huh, so there are so many people who have um, who would never, who aren't invest in investment minded, who don't follow markets closely or anything. But who got a little jolt uh, when they saw that their crypto account was was up and and threw more money in and then more money in and then then it went down and they threw more money in to re recoup their losses and and so on. It wasn't Angry Birds; it was Squid Game. There you go. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, in the in the two thousands, before the meltdown of two thousand eight, how many people? I I wasn't like this, but I could easily have been how many people checked to take make, take Abe's point how many people check the value of their 401k five six times a day tens of millions of people because it was there was this run-up right it was sort of like they sat there they had this money taken out of their you know check every two weeks the base amount that had been taken out over the course of several years was $150,000 and they click on it and lo and behold, now it's worth $350,000. And then there's a really good day and then it's worth $375,000. Well, 
like the dopamine rush that was provided by that was really unparalleled. And when Chuck Prince, the head of Citibank, who knew, as everybody knew, that a huge crash was coming, said, you've got to keep dancing until the music stops because there's too much money to be made before the crash. So we, I would be fired if I didn't continue playing in this sandbox when I said, you know what, it's really... You know, the sandbox is getting very dirty and like, you know, we could maybe, you know, you could your kid could get, you know, I don't know what horrible rosacea or some horrible disease from the sandbox. It's like, no, you keep that kid in the sandbox forever. And, you know, the 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 hope might be if this is the right description of the crypto bubble, that a prosecution like Sam Bankman Freed's could be the thing that prevents the world from collapsing because of because of crypto you know it, it's like if there had been a uh you know uh, prosecution for the for the um you know for the financial instruments that were bundling these you know real estate options and things in 2005 and people had gone to jail then then maybe there would have been an, an element of caution would have entered into the financial world that would have prevented the horror that was visited upon us. But well, you think, can rush, you can rationalize ahead, yourself into any number of of ways to believe that this obviously unsound product, financial product, could be sound, or maybe if it's not, at least it's valuable. We haven't really talked about effective altruism, which is kind of the smokescreen that it helped, you know, people who really want to do good in the world justify this investment. I think we're seeing now in the form of uh, this backlash against and the backlash to the backlash against ESG investing, uh, something very similar, which smells to me like an absolute scheme, like something that it's obvious to anybody who understands what investment is supposed to do generate a return that this is logic esg is logic for justifying investments in companies that are not financially sound that do not return the highest investment but are justified by virtue of the fact that they're doing good in the world and they're doing good in the world by virtue of the fact that they're paying attention to liberal causes and um and uh, yeah, environmental social anxieties. and governments so yeah, people, so environmental, yeah. social, and governance. That's what ESG investing yeah. just right. Yeah. So you look at, you know, that's just a, a way for people who want to throw money, good money after bad, a way to rationalize themselves into doing it. And also you'll get a return and it's going to be great somewhere down the line. But you know, the first thing that you're thinking of if you have too much money in the first place is how you're gonna how you're gonna feel good about yourself at night. That's what effective altruism was. That's what ESG is. And that sort of ballasted the scam. Well, and that combined with the fact, because I think it's really important to put to to put Sam Bankman Fried in the context, as Jim does in his excellent piece of Silicon Valley. Also, this is not this wasn't he didn't exactly come right out of the straight old banking and finance world. This is a guy who, like many before him, founders of tech companies were given the benefit of the doubt over and over and over again and not asked the kind of tough questions that say, oh, I don't know, a conservative who wants to found a media company would be asked or, you know, any other range of people who want to build empires from scratch that the the founder problem, I think, and Jim does a really good job in his piece of showing this, the founder problem continues for for that industry in a way that we they should already have learned the lesson of these founders over-promising and under-delivering or even being fraudulent in the case of Elizabeth Holmes. But I'm not so sure they have learned it yet. And they might not after SBF either. 
Well, I mean, let's let let's talk a little about that because the, the the classic Silicon Valley model was this question of whether you could have gotten it on the ground floor of these companies that are now worth trillions of dollars collectively. Could you have gotten into Apple early? Could you have gotten into Facebook early? Could you have gotten into PayPal early? Could you have gotten into these remarkable things? And again, you know, if you're talking about a world in which multi-million dollar, multi-millionaire investors or these funds that are get, get, get their money from multi-multi-multi-millionaire investors who are take who have the wherewithal to take big swings that might miss. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Like that's actually how, you know, sort of like large scale moonshot investment is supposed to work. You can put $100 million into something if you can lose $100 million. That's fine. And if you and who dares wins, right? The riskier the play, the the return could be, you know, uh, astounding. The question, again, goes to when this becomes something that steps away from the multi-billionaires, the world of the billionaire, and into the world of the thousandaire. And whether people are conned into participating in these plays in some fashion or other when they are not in a position to suffer the losses. Also, people like this who have a very sophisticated understanding of investing know that what they're doing might be vapor. They go into it understanding that they might be vapor and they're going in with the idea that the minute that their stock matures or that they can get out of it, they're going to lay off their risk on somebody else. Take the profit. If you're like an investor, you're taking profits all the You're getting out of things all the time. You're not staying in them and then riding them down until they crash. You're it's fine taking a 15% profit on a stock that, you know, like that's, you do that, you know, you do that 50 times a year, you're like a very rich person, you know? So they also have a strategy that ordinary people like me, like who don't really do this for a living, don't can't quite grapple, which is grapple with, which is nothing is permanent. The whole point is the trade is the trading. Getting out once you think you have enough money. It's like walking away from a from a blackjack table. Go play blackjack. You 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 come into the casino with two hundred and fifty dollars. You run it up to seven hundred and fifty dollars. Get out. Take it. Take the chips. You just made. You just tripled your investment. Problem is, you're still in Vegas. You have nothing else to do. You know. I mean, but I mean, that's how. If you were going to be like a blackjack player investor, you could actually not be destroyed by your gambling addiction. But the whole point about gambling addiction is it doesn't work like that. But let's talk about the, let's talk about the, uh, the tech gods, the twilight of the tech gods. Cause of course the biggest one right now is, is Elon and the game of Twitter, but we have so, so many examples. <laughs> and Elizabeth Holmes obviously is now going to jail along with Sonny Balwani, her boyfriend, CEO, whatever. But um, Peter Thiel just lost how much, in Blake Masters, 17 million? Was it 37 million? I don't even know. 
<laughs> well, you know, one of the one of the points I tried to make in that piece was the syndrome you often see with people who are extremely successful in one field, especially the tech guys, because, you know, it's all about them thinking of themselves as being so much smarter than everyone else. And they often are like super, super smart. But they assume that because they're smart in one field, they're really good at everything else. You know, I'm, I made a gazillion dollars at, at PayPal. Therefore, I know a lot about politics and how to back candidates. Or, and it, one of my favorite examples goes back about 10 or, or almost 15 years now. Do you remember when uh, Cory Booker invited Mark Zuckerberg to help fund the revival of, New, of Newark's schools? And it was this really exciting program here was this at that that time, he was this sort of young gazillionaire and he was going to come in and he was going to help, you know, provide um, many, many millions of dollars to to uh, reboot Newark schools. Well, 10 years later, you know, there's maybe been some progress here and there, but this idea that just because somebody like Zuckerberg is so smart, like how hard could education be, right, compared to starting a one of the world's, uh, you know, richest tech companies? Well, it turns out it's pretty hard, and uh, and just because you think you're smart doesn't mean you know how to do it. And I, I think we've seen a lot of those kinds of stories. What makes Musk so extraordinary is that he really has hopped from industry to industry and been successful in most of them. You know, he was, I mean, what he's, SpaceX continues to amaze. Uh, Tesla may be hitting some rough patches of road, partly given to how his erratic behavior is undermining the brand, but he has shown an ability to work in very, very different fields uh, successfully. But, you know, not everything is successful. And just because he's really good at, at engineering doesn't mean he ought to be shooting his mouth off about geopolitics and what China should do with Taiwan and how to find peace in Ukraine. And, you know, I think for people who like me, who like Musk and want him to succeed at Twitter, some of his kind of, you know, to say, call it outspoken is to put it far too mildly. Some of his just erratic and jerky behavior uh, on and off throughout his career, but especially, you know, in the in the weeks since he bought Twitter, it's pretty worrisome. And it not just because it reveals a side of his personality that's discomforting, but because it undermines his businesses. You know, it hurts his brands. It hurts his relationships in the political sphere that his companies really need to navigate these highly regulated environments. Well, and like Starlink is another one that he's been very successful with. That's been extremely, mm -hmm. I, I mean, he is kind of in, in his own way. He is a player in geopolitics just by sending those Starlinks to places that need internet service where the, where authoritarian governments cut it off. But you're absolutely right. And I, I, I feel like it's in microcosm, what Twitter does to everyone. We're just seeing it play out with a much bigger, you know, sort of personality. It's like, stop, Elon, it's corrupting you too. Um, but his trollish behavior in some ways, um, is is uh, distracting people from seeing what he's actually trying to do in a very revolutionary way on Twitter in terms of free speech and sort of transparency. And, and I imagine that's got a lot of other, certainly leaders of social media, other social media platforms and tech companies nervous because there's going to be an expectation the public will now have. I mean, there's somebody sending around a meme of an iceberg and at the top it says the Twitter files. And then there's this massive thing underneath that says, well, what about Facebook files, Instagram files, you know, all the... There's a lot of this that's been happening in tech and him casting a light on this one tiny corner of it is is got to be it's got to be worrying the other tech lords. Well, let's talk about the Twitter files. I mean, what's your take 
on like how much has been revealed, how important is it so far? I think it's pretty important to show that a very small group of people in an, who with who lived in an ideological monoculture on the fly were making decisions that impacted a, a social media platform that, although small compared to others, has overwhelming cultural and political influence, particularly around our electoral politics. So I think him showing what these people, how on the fly and how motivated either intentionally or not by partisan reasoning, how how much that affected uh, the decisions that were made and then retroactively justifying them and lying to Congress and to shareholders and to the public about why they made those decisions. I think it's it, that alone is enough. The secondary point about free speech and about allowing lots of voices, even sort of angry, vile, conspiracy minded voices on these platforms. That's also a debate we that's long overdue to have on these platforms. I, I'm more struck or I continue to be struck by the uh way in which the people who are most uh, engaged in Twitter, like anything that is an uh, that is a hobby that becomes an obsession, like a sports team or whatever, kind of believe that they're the owners of Twitter. Now, the people who work at Twitter also are kind of in that position. Uh, and so, you know, something happens that they don't like and they're like, I'm leaving. I'm never going to be I'm not going to be a fan of this anymore. Like that huge jerk, Ken White Popat, just announced one of the most unpleasant Twitter person. For all I know, by the way, he's a nice person because people are very weird on Twitter. Like I was pretty obnoxious on Twitter. I think I'm a reasonably nice person. I got off Twitter because I didn't like the person that I was my the persona that somehow had crept up on me. On Twitter, but um, you know, so for all I know, Ken White is a lovely person, but he's got this just absolutely unbelievably unpleasant personality, and he just announced yesterday that he was leaving Twitter because for what? For what reason? Because it's not conforming with you know, because somehow it's not um, you know, didn't trade for the right pitcher or the coach is bad. Now they have a new coach or they have a new manager, and he doesn't like them, and they should go right. It's like you don't own the place. The people who worked at it didn't own the place. And here's the weird part about this. Like, not only do they act like they owned the place, they did damage to the place, claiming, feeling like they had ownership when they were employees of it. And this confusion is a big millennial problem. This seems to be something that happens with these people who they leave college and they go into the workplace. They work at the New York Times. They think they own the New York Times. They're employees of the New York Times. They go work somewhere and they start complaining about the way the place works. Yeah, we've all worked. We've all been working people for decades and we work at places and they're run badly and we're annoyed by them. Um, so you go work somewhere else. It's not yours. You don't own it. You're an employee. If you owned it, you, could, you wouldn't take a salary. If you owned it, you would own it, and then you would live off the you would live off the land. Well, it's a you know? it's a socialist fantasy that you own it, right? I mean, because the, when the workers own the means of production, then then you know then then you're living out uh, uh, Marx's vision. You know, um, I mean, what, what strikes me is, about yeah, go ahead. all these cases. The linking SBF and Elizabeth Holmes and the the general the twilight of the tech gods thing here is that unlike uh, so many other industries and bubbles, um, 
all of these enterprises came with a massive dose of messianism, right? Uh, wh wh whether whether it's overtly effective altruism or just Silicon Valley's uh, general delusion that in connecting so many people, they're doing all this 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 good. And Elizabeth Holmes was going to revolutionize medicine. And how about you just go back to um, unapologetic capitalism? You yeah, know, make a product, see if it sells. Yeah, yeah. If it sells, you're rewarded, and then yeah. people you're providing a service, and 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 people will pay for it, and they'll pay a lot for it if it really works very well, and all of that. It's absolutely true. But let me get to the Bond villain point here for a second. If we, if you, if we're going to write a novel about how liberalism was going to destroy the world, we could not have invented a character as brilliant as Sam Bankman-Fried, and the question here in the Bond villain senses, how much did he, how cynical was this play? We're all assuming that he meant effective altruism, right? His mother, his parents are professors at Stanford law. His mother started a, some kind of a algorithmic system to figure out how to give money most effectively to democratic candidates. She's had to resign from the board. His father you know, they had wonderful dinners and everyone loved them and they had dinners in Silicon Valley and all this. Meanwhile, this kid grows up. He says he never read a book. He doesn't like to read. He doesn't want to read anything, uh, which is an interesting thing for somebody to say who you're then supposed to assume is a intellectual genius who understands cryptocurrency. Because, like, where where does he understand it from exactly? Did it just, like, beam into his head? While he was playing a video game, I don't really understand it. But what I think is, if we, if you, if I said to you, somebody has this idea, he's going to create a con that is going to take, is going to suck up tens of billions of dollars that he is then going to secrete around the world somewhere where no one can find it. He'll go to jail at some point, then he'll come out of jail, and then he'll, then he'll dig it up, you know, in New Caledonia. <laughs> or you know you know some some remote place on the globe that no one could find it how would he do it well he would say i don't want money and you know what effective altruism and i'm going to give lots of money to democratic candidates and give lots of money to the democratic party and my parents are going to do the same and the whole thing he's a bond villain because if he fails of course then the world blows up you know, he's like, or he wants the world to blow up so that then he's the only person left with the money that he buried in New Caledonia that he can go find when he gets out of jail. I'm not sure yet that that scenario that I'm laying out, the bond, isn't really what Sam Bankman-Fried is, that this was the most astoundingly cynical thing that we have ever seen happen, that the con, that the effective altruism stuff was built consciously into the con as his cover the way that elizabeth holmes's cover was she was the female steve jobs she didn't she dropped out of school she wore black turtlenecks she had this deep voice but she was still pretty she managed to sort of like be seductive to some of these older men in the worlds of finance and politics or whatever business and politics and that the con she was the con that supported and then you have to say did she ever think that it would work that the machine would work. She obviously didn't care whether the machine would work or not. 
That wasn't the point. It was to come up with a concept that was going to suck up the venture capital. So I, I think we're maybe making a mistake not looking at this as the ultimate act of the the ultimate exposure and exploitation of the liberal bubble is Sam Bankman-Fried. What do you make of that theory? I want to propose an alternate theory. <laughs> okay. I, I think there are people in this world who uh, – in this world of, of um, venture capital tech geniuses who – they kind of buy into the hype. They don't think they're on their way to being evil geniuses. It it, uh, it, it happens by degree. It's not a master plan. You, I, I don't, I, as I recall, you weren't a big fan of the movie Don't Look Up, but <laughs> but there was something brilliant in that movie, and that was the Mark Rylance character who played that sort of goofy tech trillionaire who was – who who would give these Ted-like talks about about expanding human consciousness and forging connections of the human spirit and the cosmos through technology and blah, blah, blah. It sounded like every Ted talk I, and I used to go to Ted. <laughs> I used to go to Ted talks and it sounded like every Ted talk I'd ever heard. And, and that you can do an enormous amount of damage just by, by being a fool a smart fool, yeah. you know, uh, and, you know, he comes up with some gadget that's supposed to deflect the asteroid, and of course it doesn't work. So I, I think that's a possible scenario too, or people start off being just a little bit of a huckster, a little bit of a visionary, then things start not working, and they start cheating to cover their losses, but initially with the hope that they're going to, it's going to work, the hope that, you know, they'll catch up and the, and the, the, the gadget will work or the money will come in and they'll pay everyone back and no one will ever know that they, you know, they crossed over this line. I, I think that's – I don't know whether Sam Bankman-Fried falls into that category or not. You're arguing that he constructed this enterprise to in order to defraud. I, I'm leaning that way too. But it will be interesting to learn more about how this organization gradually drifted over these – or maybe not so gradually – drifted over these ethical lines you know, and, and, you know, and became this kind of fraud machine. Look, I mean, I think what I described is, is, is what you describe is much more, I think, evidently the case with Theranos, which is Theranos was an idea about how to, you know, test for diseases. And it turned out that the idea was unworkable from the beginning because of the literally the physical nature of blood and how blood works. And a rational person coming up with this idea would then go and talk to blood hematologists and stuff and say, how do you think about this? And they go, well, it congeals too fast. You know, you can't get it really. You can't get enough information from one drop of blood because it congeals too fast or it, go, it goes bad too fast. You know, and then he'd be like, oh, oh, well, sounded good at the time. Right. But OK, so they she didn't have that conversation or if she had it. She ignored it and found another hematologist who said, sure, that sounds really good. And then the whole thing was she was selling the blood machine, uh, but wasn't using a blood machine. She was just using standard issue blood testing uh, through, you know, other modalities uh, and not really making it clear to people that the blood machine wasn't wasn't functional yet. And then everybody who worked there was being locked in rooms and not able to go to another room because she and her guy, Sonny, both knew that nothing was working. 
and they needed to keep that fact from everybody who worked at Theranos. And so at some point you slip over from the, this, you know what? I'm in a dorm room. I'm like, you know, it'd be great if you just could prick your finger and then you could find out whether you have, you know, uh, Crohn's disease. And it's like, yeah, well, you know what? That would be great. But you it, no, that's why when you go take blood, they take vials and vials of your blood because the blood, it doesn't work that way. And and so, but Sam Bankman is a different animal because this was so short. The, the life of this company was so short. And the fact that they incepted that hedge fund investment vehicle at the same time and commingled the money, Alameda Research and FTX, the money was commingled. He took money out of FTX to buy things with Alameda. And they and had like I, a Slack channel that was like wire called wire fraud or something. Like they were yeah. so dumb about it. Sorry, I just but that, I don't that know if they chuckle. were I don't know if they were dumb or if they were just so brazenly cynical and nihilistic. That they were like, I'm Sam Bankman-Fried. My parents have been at Stanford since I was a kid. I've been sitting at these di this dining room table on Sunday night since I was a kid. And everybody here is full of crap. And they all blather and they talk nonsense. And they all make me sick. And I've now figured out how to use this argle-bargle tech liberal nonsense. I'm going to take it and repurpose it. And I'm going to steal billions of dollars with it. I think there's another possibility here. That's altogether. the Bond villain theory. Okay, yeah, right. I, I think there's another theory here altogether, which is let's presume for my theory here that all these people did want to do good on some grand scale, right? Um, but why? Why do you want to save the world? Um, because your 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 sympathy and empathy and sense of humanity is bottomless, or because you have delusions of grandeur i mean so i i don't i don't know that they're that they didn't set out to do the great things they say they, they said they were going to do i just don't trust the motivations behind that well again let's take let's say that i'm you're right about this and they want to do grand things and so ftx is actually robin hood he's robin hood he's going around to very rich people and he's taking their money and he's giving it to the poor right and that that's his defense, his justification in the in this sense. Not that he's a Bond villain, but that he's like going to somebody, going to a venture, getting $500 million, and then he's taking it and he's putting it toward defective altruism or whatever. That's where the rubber meets the road with the advertising on the Super Bowl. Limit your game to take to, to taking the ready money of rich people who have already siloed it in order to lose it in case they're taking this big swing. That's one morally, spiritually, whatever, even legally. That's one thing going for people who don't have money and getting them to give you their money. That's another thing. And, and that's where, you know, maybe he started as one and went into the other. I kind of like my, he sat at the dinner table and realized that this was a world that was so corrupt that his own nihilism was like, you know what? If, if somebody just plays right, just feeds these people the baby food that they love, just spoons it into their mouths. Blows kisses to Maxine Waters or vice versa. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in, just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute. There's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary, or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Um, so, Jim, you asked Christine about her feelings uh, in relation to uh, the Twitter files. And Christine's piece, which we talked a little bit about yesterday, but is now really available for people to read today in in the January commentary right next to yours, uh, uh, is about uh, the world of the reporters who have made their bones using Twitter uh, and looking at Twitter and trying to make sure that disinformation is not spread on social media, and particularly to focus on the NBC News disinformation team of Ben Collins and Brandy Zadrozny. Um, Christine, give us a sense, a more complete sense than we did yesterday about what, what you argue in, in your in your piece, which has well, a really great name that's too complicated. Now I can't remember what it is. because Disinformation was, reporters report disinformation, I think is what it ended up being. Something like that, right? Um, <laughs> How disinformation no, I, journalists practice disinformation. Right. Right. Okay. There's I yeah. mean, there's this whole little boomlet. Um, and actually, Jacob Bernstein and Harper's like a year or so ago wrote a great sort of thorough piece about big disinfo. And he talks about the sort of rise of a kind of industry, particularly in journalism, that has disinformation as its beat. Obviously, it arose during the Trump years. It arose when, you know, social media, when when conspiracy theorizing on social media became a concern and as, you know, election issues became a concern. But what the NBC News disinformation desk in particular, um, I read almost everything they both wrote. I just want to say like I I that's I feel like if I'm going to criticize other journalists, I, I need to read all of their work. And I really there's something really weirdly formulaic about the kinds of stories that emerge. And they're perfectly timed to um, incite concern, fear, animosity, all the things that get clicks, which is very important. Um, and the formula is this. 
uh, either Ben Collins or Brandis Rosie would go to some far dark corner of the internet, you know, 4chan, uh, Discord, Reddit thread, something. They would find people doing what people do in these corners of the internet, which is often terrible, horrible things, saying saying awful things. And then they would extrapolate from that group in, into uh, cultural crisis, right? We're in a moment of crisis. Look at all these people saying these terrible things. These people were always saying things usually coming from the far right. Um, I don't remember a single piece about the far left that they've ever published. So that was sort of convenient, but that was a choice that they made as journalists to cover only that side of the beat, the disinformation beat, not the whole range of disinformation that's out there. And then it became a sort of, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. This kind of information flowing out there is dangerous. It's going to it's going to lead to violence. Um, they're very much both on board with the idea that just posting information is an act of violence. Brandy Zadrozny notoriously hates libs of TikTok, which is this, you know, kind of trollish Twitter account that nevertheless does the public service of finding crazy stuff that the far left is doing on TikTok and just posting it on Twitter, saying, like, here's another thing they're doing. Um, she said that that was inciting violence. She went on NBC News and said, you know, they are targeting all these, you know, gay, transsexual people. It's leading to violence. They um, they have made it a kind of uh, moral crusade against a part of the Internet that I certainly share their concern about some of the things that people say. But that's why we have a free and open uh, devotion to free expression in this country. So I, I felt like the the problem wasn't that they were reporting on this stuff. The problem is that they have assumed a position on a moral high ground that says that not only is this dangerous and should be censored, which they do, they do argue, but these people are crazy. We are the only people that can protect democracy from these crazy hordes on, on these sites. And you must listen to our directives. You must listen to what we say. And when they are called out for their own mistakes, and all journalists make mistakes, they do not take accountability for their errors. Instead, they double down and claim that they are the victims now of harassment campaigns. And we've seen this with other, certainly with the kind of millennial era reporters like Taylor Lawrence and others. This is this is the playbook. So I just feel like they're deeply irresponsible while telling everybody else they have to be more responsible. And it it's frustrated me for a long time. So I a lot of that comes out in the piece. But some of the work they have done is fine. Like, I, you know, not everything is terrible, but their overarching focus seems to be uh, relentlessly partisan and also lacking in accountability when they are shown to be covering for things like, say, the uh, uh, suppression of the Hunter laptop story, things like that. So that in a nutshell, a kind of wordy nutshell. Sorry, <laughs> Jim, um, I always love to turn to you as a veteran of the mainstream media, long time <laughs> editor of time inc uh when there was a time inc uh maybe it wasn't maybe were, were you always you were timing before time warner right before no, was i was there inc. after i was there during the merger oh, okay um, so time yeah. warner and then popular mechanics and you have um imagine that you as a reporter or imagine that you are somebody who reads in another publication so you're an entertainment weekly premiere gets the internal files of Sony pictures, not from the, not from the North Koreans, but somehow the new management at Sony says to premier come in, I'm going to give you an exclusive. You can read all of the, all of the emails, not that there was much email then, but whatever, you can read all the emails of the previous regimes to see what went on, how the sausage was made, how the decisions were made to make, you know, Howard the Duck or something like that, why it happened, what people were saying, what was going on. 
and we're still asking that there, question, by right. the way. <laughs> okay, you're sitting, you're sitting there, uh, and your rival or somebody else gets this like unbelievable scoop. Do you then walk around going, "Yeah, this is nothing. This is nothing. Whatever." What and you know what? Premier, Premier stinks. Premier's la I don't like Premier. <laughs> you know, they were they published they published press releases. They don't do real journalism. They just like promote celebrities from PR firms. What happened last week and what has been happening over the last week with the Twitter files is, I mean, I can't think of anything even remotely comparable that a current manager of a company that he has bought has, has let journalists look at what happened under previous management in an almost un completely uncensored way and the people like ben collins and others are walking around saying that it's nothing now it may not be world changing it may not be the imp implicate the first amendment but as a business story this is jaw-dropping Am I am I wrong? No, you're I mean, you're right. Well, first of all, we have to tell our readers, remind our readers, these are two major entertainment magazines that don't exist anymore. <laughs> and and you know, and like most of the magazines I've worked at in my career, <laughs> you know, they've they are they are uh, barely remembered today. But um, but what you're describing is a temptation. You know, it is a temptation. Entertainment Weekly was a weekly magazine. Premiere was a monthly that did a lot of real inside coverage of Hollywood and scandals and stuff. And if your competitor gets something, it is tempting to want to say, eh, yeah, it's not that big a deal. And it's a little embarrassing then to have to go and cover it yourself. And you learn quickly if you work with good people that that's you got to fight that impulse. You know, if you're Entertainment Weekly, you get scooped on a story, you still have to then turn around and cover the story and find some way to advance it or add something to it. You can't just just uh, put your head in the in the sand. So what we're seeing today is something we've seen a lot in modern journalism. It's it's journalistic outfits that put that work against their own self-interest. I mean, remember the Hunter laptop story? It was so freaking juicy. I mean, you don't have to be a conservative to be fascinated with, you know, all the different elements of this story. Here was this crackhead, you know, on Air Force Two flying around the world with his father, who's vice president, getting introduced to big shots in China and everywhere. I, you know, John, you often say, well, there's no real smoking gun in terms of implicating Biden in in the exchanges i think the smoking gun is the very fact that he had the son on the plane with him you know uh it doesn't it doesn't fair enough yeah <laughs> you know it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to find a, you know a, a check that he endorsed you know that went into his account it's just so insanely dangerous and unprofessional and 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 put and you know corrupt so um so yeah, that so we're seeing this now. There's this really interesting story going on, and all of these these people don't want to write about a story their readers would be interested in. You saw it also with the lab leak uh, controversy. Remember when one of the New York Times reporters said, "Oh, someday everyone will stop talking about this lab leak conspiracy theory, and you know, and how and you know, and we'll recognize how racist it is." It's like, wait, you don't want to cover the most the origin of this virus that is the number one story on the entire planet you're not curious about where it came from because the story doesn't fit your political 
priors. And I think that's going to be the death. If that continues, it's the death of journalism. You you literally don't want to cover stories that are interesting just because, you know, they might help the other side. And it's and they're blatant about it. You know, they they practically come right out and just say that it the story, the utility of the story isn't in, in alignment with my goals. So therefore, I'm not going to cover it or it doesn't exist or people who do cover it are somehow suspect. I'll tell you a quick uh, uh, story from my time at Time Magazine when I was a researcher. This would be 1983. And in 1983, uh, the international editor of Time and the editor of Newsweek both flew I think, to Berlin, or they may have flown to England, and they were put in a room, and they were told that, uh, they sh that it was time for them to bid on the newly discovered Hitler Diaries which had been the 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 veracity of which or the providence of which had been verified by Hugh Trevor Roper, one of the great historians of the Second World War, and that Hitler's diaries had been found and that uh, these were now being sold for first serial to the United States and that, uh, you know, bids were up in 24 hours. They could sit in a room, read what they, you know, read stuff, you know, bid on it, and Newsweek bid fortunes of money, and time did not, in the end, want to go as high. And uh, they came back, uh, and it was then known, it was then for some reason, no, it could be known that Newsweek was about to go on Monday, when, when the news magazines came out, or Sunday afternoon, Newsweek was going to have the Hitler Diaries on the cover of Newsweek, and... Uh, I was then assigned as a researcher with a writer named Marguerite Johnson to publish, to, to work on a two-column story on the Hitler Diaries. This was either called a catch-up or a note, meaning you knew it was coming, you wanted to be on the record the same week about this news event that there was, that these diaries existed. You couldn't use any of the information that... Uh, that the guy who at the time had been the person to read them, but you could say these came out, Hugh Trevor Roper, you know, is uh, putting his uh, imprimatur on them. Newsweek is publishing them. This could be, you know, world historical event, da, 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 just sort of noting it so that you were on the record knowing that it had happened because it would be too embarrassing, not even to know that it had happened. That's the competitive thing. Now, what happened? The diaries were forgeries. Uh, the entire senior editorship of Newsweek was fired. Uh, Hugh Trevor Roper's reputation was sullied forever. And the whole thing was something that could never have happened in the computer age or like in, in our current age because it would already have been known. It's By the way, this is an amazing thing. To, to, now I'm really going wild, but... You know, for like a year, there was this whole thing where Clifford Irving or months and months, Clifford Irving said that he was writing the autobiography of Howard Hughes, who was alive at the time. And he got like two million dollars from a publishing house. And no. And and somehow it they it took months for the publishing house to realize that. There was no Howard Hughes co-op that 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 Irving was making it up. Like a contract was signed the whole day. Irving eventually went to prison, but this is how like that would have lasted 15 minutes. 
you know, in the in 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 our era, the Hitler Diaries would have been the same thing. But that's what I'm saying. That's where the competitive front, like time assumed that the Hitler Diaries were legit. They were actually bidding on them. They just didn't want to spend what Newsweek was going to spend, number one and number two. Or they weren't so a hundred percent sure that they were willing to play, but you know, they were gonna let Newsweek maybe step, you know take the swing that they weren't willing to take. And now we have this exposure of the Twitter files and the entire press corps acting as though because they don't like Barry Weiss and they they used to like Matt Taibbi until he became a billionaire's press person. The Washington Post described him as a conservative writer yesterday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's a conservative writer. He's like he's like, you know, he's like slightly to the left of Stalin. That's 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 how conservative Vantaibi is. Uh anyway, um it's just fascinating to me. Like, you know, th- that there was a there was a world in which you took note of things even if you didn't really know that they were re- you know, you wanted to take note of things so you didn't want to look like a fool. And apparently now it's better to look like a fool because the millennials are feel unsafe or I don't know what. It's better to look like you're on you're, you're loyal to your team. I think that's the that's the motivating thing here. Yeah. You know, this is so much ancient history, but there's something about this that that scandal that's relevant even now. And I may have this I may have the chronology slightly off, but as I recall it. The news that the diaries are fake started to break just as the Newsweek issue was going to press and doubts were emerging. So now they've got this giant story they paid a lot of money for. They still need to run it, but they need to kind of acknowledge that it might all be bogus. And so Newsweek wrote the classic news magazine final paragraph of all time. And it, it went something like, it's like, so, you know, uh, you know, well, you know, whether the Newsweek, I mean, whether the Hitler diaries prove authentic or not, it hardly matters in the end. They reveal this fascination that Hitler yeah. still holds over blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, wait, it hardly matters in the end. That is a certain kind yeah. of like. Fake but accurate. High, that is yeah. the view from the journalistic view from on high, you know, <laughs> that every columnist has probably fallen into it sometime. It's like, like, like I have a perspective that rises above mere details of whether something's true or accurate. All right. Well, Jim Meggs, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, guys, just to remind you, uh, I, I asked you for money at the beginning. I'm not going to ask for your patronage here at the end in a different way. Please go to Apple and give us a five-star review. Would it kill you? You're listening. You've listened to this point. You've listened a whole hour. That probably means maybe it's less than an hour because you're listening to it speed it up. Um, by the way, this is the other thing that millennials are going to have a problem with, which is like living in the world in which they can't just speed everything up to you know 1.5, like actually have conversations with people at normal speeds. I don't know, be very impatient making. Um, but it would, it would be very. We'd really appreciate it if you'd go to Apple and 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 give us a give us a nice review because it really does help in exposing us to other people who might want to come and listen to the podcast. And then you can have more conversations about, about us with people in your ambit here at the, in the holiday season. So for Abe, Christina, Noah, John Bot Horitz, keep the candle burning.